Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 70th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. All right. Here we are in 1997. It's a new decade for us. We haven't done a 90s year yet. No, and we were alive for this one. So that's exciting. We were. It's interesting. So we've done 2014, 2007, and now 97. And I feel like 2007, we had a fun mix of really remembering the movies and nostalgia. And I feel like obviously 97 is even more heavy on the nostalgia of like, oh my gosh, we were children. Oh, we were so young. So how many of these, remind me, which of you, had you seen before we did this? I'd seen three of the nominees. I'd seen Titanic, LA Confidential, and Goodwill Hunting. I had also seen three, but a different three than you. Well, two of the same three, Goodwill Hunting uh, and Titanic. I, yeah, I had not seen LA Confidential, but I had seen As Good As It Gets. So what was going on? It was a different time. It was. Bill Clinton was just beginning his second term. Princess Di, unfortunately, died this year. So that was massive world news. It was. People were very sad. In interesting science and space news this year, the Hale-Bopp comet came, which led to some interesting events. Yeah, the Heaven's Gate cult committed suicide because they thought God was on a spaceship behind the comet, I think, is what was going on there? Sure. If I were God, I would hide my spaceship behind a comet as well. Meanwhile, the Mars Pathfinder becomes the first rover on Mars, which is pretty cool. And Dolly the Sheep is announced. So Dolly was a clone and we were all like, oh no. That was also big news. What does Everyone this mean? Everyone was like, oh my God, people will be next. The whole world's going to be overrun with clones. And that didn't happen, shockingly. No. This is the year where Mike Tyson bit Evander Holyfield's ear off. That was huge. Is there any more important sports news that has ever happened? Almost as huge was Tiger Woods, a young Tiger Woods, winning his first Masters this year. And then he would go on to be the most dominant golfer potentially ever to play the game. Yeah. And he really changed golf, you know? He really did. He was a real different face for golf. And we'll leave it at that. Yeah. In what was probably the most interesting stuff for us in this process of researching. I mean, maybe also partially just because, again, a lot of the stuff like I remember and have nostalgia for. No idea this was going on. Fascinating. Nope. (laughs) There were not one, not two, but three of the largest ever cash robberies in the United States this year. So in March... There was something called the Loomis Fargo robbery, where the robbers got away with $18.8 million. At the time, the largest cash robbery in the United States. And then these bastards, six months later, (laughs) at the Dunbar armed robbery, stole $18.9 million in cash. But you got to feel bad for the the March guys, because they were like, we did it. Biggest cash robbery in history. Look at us. Yep, we're going to be remembered forever. Nope. And then not quite as large, but there was another Loomis Fargo bank robbery in October. These guys only got away with $17.3 million, though. So like, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty lame. But also, Loomis Fargo was really taking some hits this year. (laughs) They were. In popular culture, this was the year that Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, the first novel of that series, came out. So 
That was a world changer. It was. Biggie was killed this year. The sort of second half of the East Coast, West Coast rap beef after Tupac. Yeah. So. The, the revenge. Mm-hmm. And it was a huge year. Not just a big year. A huge year for pop music. Because we have the release of Backstreet's Back. All right. Two Boys Return album. <laughs> and Sync, the first of, you guessed it, Sync's albums. And we have something that is fond to you, Spice World. Yes, the second Spice Girls album. And then the last one was the, the full group. They only did two albums? They only got two albums out before Jerry left. If My you can't believe it. I can't believe it because I was really only a Backstreet Boys fan as a child. I didn't know NSYNC or Spice Girls. I've come to love both of them as an adult. Yes. But. I loved all three at the time. It was a, a great time to be eight years old music wise. We'll get to a way in which it was a bad time to be an eight year old girl for us related to pop culture. Enough bit. <laughs> yes. Coming up. So what were the movies this year? Let's go through the nominees and all of their various statistics okay in alphabetical order as always the first nominee was as good as it gets a dramedy about a single mother a misanthropic writer and a gay artist who form an unlikely bond it stars jack nicholson helen hunt and greg kinnear it was directed by james l brooks written by mark andrus and james l brooks it was nominated for seven and won two best actor jack nicholson and best actress helen hunt the next is The Full Monty, a comedy about a group of unemployed steelworkers in Sheffield, England, that decide to put on a strip show to make a quick buck. It stars Robert Carlyle, Tom Wilkinson, and Mark Addy, directed by Peter Cataneo and written by Simon Beaufoy. It was nominated for four Academy Awards, and it won one for Best Original Musical or Comedy Score. Up next is Goodwill Hunting, a drama about a damaged genius struggling to live up to his potential. Stars Matt Damon, Robin Williams, Ben Affleck, and Minnie Driver. It's directed by Gus Van Sant, written by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. It's nominated for nine and won two. Best Supporting Actor, Robin Williams. Best Screenplay, written directly for the screen. Next, we have L.A. Confidential, a noir about corrupt LAPD officers in 1953. It stars Kevin Spacey, Russell Crowe, Guy Pearce, and Kim Basinger. Directed by Curtis Hansen, it was written by Brian Helgland and Curtis Hansen. Nominated for nine Academy Awards, it won two for Best Supporting Actress, Kim Basinger, and Best Screenplay based on material previously produced or published. And then finally, we have Titanic, a romance about a rich young woman and a poor young man on the Titanic. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Kate Winslet, and Billy Zane. Written and directed by James Cameron. It was nominated for 14 Academy Awards, and it won 11. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Costume Design, Best Film Editing, Best Original Dramatic Score, Best Original Song, Best Sound, Best Sound Effects Editing, and Best Visual Effects. Wow, that's a doozy. Yep. So the top five highest grossing films of the year were unsurprisingly number one titanic then the lost world jurassic park men in black tomorrow never dies and air force one did anything particularly notable happen in film this year (laughs) it sure did titanic which you may have heard of became the first movie to make a billion dollars at the box office and now they just can't stop making billion dollar movies at the box office inflation (laughs) 
That's all they release. <laughs> so I, we usually start with what was the general consensus at the time, but I, I will say 11 wins from 14 nominations sort of speaks for itself. Yes. Yeah, so what won that year, as we said, was Titanic. Mm-hmm. And again, we can tell you from our personal experience, Titanic fever swept the nation. People loved it. They did. It was everywhere. The historical consensus now, I would say, is slightly more nuanced. People have reconsidered just how amazing and perfect Titanic is, but it is definitely still beloved by many. It is a favorite film of lots of people, and I don't think that the critics have decided it was one of those bad wins or anything. Now, are we mad about it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we're mad. Desperately mad. (laughs) We've been mad for so long about this one. This is one of the longest ones we've ever been mad about. Yeah, I've been mad about Titanic since I was eight years old. Now, to be fair, I'd, I'd say my reasons have probably changed over the years, as I assume yours have as well. Yes. Well, when we get to Titanic, we'll talk about the journey you and I have both been on with Titanic throughout our our lives. It's it's something we have in common, though, I think. And, you know, it's, that's a fun thing for our friendship. <laughs> the shared experience. Yeah, it bonds us. <laughs> okay. So shall we say, would we have been mad if these other films had won, starting with, would you have been mad if As Good As It Gets won? Yes. You? I'd say yes, but I'm, I'm mixed about it. Would you have been mad if The Full Monty won? Yes. I think I'm going to say no. Okay. Okay. Would you have been mad if Goodwill Hunting won? No. No. Would you have been mad if LA Confidential won? No. I'm even more torn about LA Confidential. Okay. I think no, though. I think I'm a no. Okay. So our double yeses are as good as it gets in Titanic. Maybe we should start with as good as it gets. I think that's fair. And then get to Titanic. Okay. So let's talk about as good as it gets. We've got sort of three main characters in this world. We have our Jack Nicholson character, who is this writer with obsessive compulsive disorder and also he's an asshole and then he has this one restaurant that he will go to and he really loves this one waitress who works at the at the restaurant and she's like well she's the only waitress who will serve him at the restaurant yes he has a fixation on helen hunt's character who is the only person who will serve him at the restaurant that he goes to and then our third person in our story here is his neighbor who is Greg Kinnear he is an artist a painter and he's gay and they were sort of setting off the events of the picture are he gets robbed in a home invasion and attacked and so he's Mm -hmm. very injured and he is having financial issues because he doesn't have insurance and it's very expensive and all of this and then he has a little dog that he can't take care of and Jack Nicholson the neighbor gets called in to take care of this dog by Greg Kinnear's manager i guess he is cuba gooding jr and so he's taking care of the dog and then he gets convinced to take greg kinnear down to see his family because he needs to ask them for money and he invites helen hunt to come along and the three of them go on a road trip and you know bonding happens and uh, the grinch's heart grows three sizes and nicholson falls in love with helen hunt and makes some overtures and she's not sure if she can get past the fact that he is such a jerk (laughs) And so by the end, he has sort of taken in Greg Kinnear, who needs a place to live. And oh, over the course of this, he has done this amazing thing for Helen Hunt, who has mm-hmm. a sick son, where he has paid for a personal doctor to come take care of her son. And then, yeah, she comes around and and they get together at the end. And he has friends and a dog now. Well, he has a girlfriend, a friend, and a dog. A girlfriend, a friend, and a dog. 
Yeah. So much has changed. What did you think about As Good As It Gets? I really didn't like this movie. Really? I think you described him as an asshole. That is an understatement. He is racist and homophobic and anti-Semitic, right? And I think Mm -hmm. it is intended to play for comedy, but for me, they started in a place that was too irredeemable and the movie did not do enough to make help him come back from it. I was reading Roger Ebert's review. He hurls racist, sexist, homophobic, and physical insults at everyone he meets. And because it's Nicholson, we let him. And for me, like, yes, Jack Nicholson is an extremely charming actor, but not sufficient. Oh, and the film also starts with animal cruelty. So he initially hates the dog and he puts it yeah. down a trash chute in their building, which could have killed this animal. I think the implication, right, is that he's acting out because of his OCD, but none of it ended up working for me. The turns didn't end up working for me. I just think like overall, the movie hasn't aged super well. Mm -hmm. And then it's quite long. It's two hours and 19 minutes. And there are just some elements too of the melodrama, which I didn't care for. There's this really just stereotypical piano music that comes in whenever anyone's having a dramatic scene, which I was Uh like, ooh, this feels very dated. There was very little about this movie that I liked or enjoyed. And it was interesting having watched it after watching The Station Agent, which we did for 2003, because I think there's a lot of similarities between these two films. I thought about The Station Agent too, watching it. But that movie really worked for me, I think, because yes, Peter Dinklage's character in that movie is, is not a people person, but a, he has a reason for that, right? He's been mistreated throughout his life because of dwarf, right? And we mm-hmm. see that in that movie too. And his response to it is not to be racist and anti-Semitic. It's just to sort of, yeah, not be very friendly. But yeah, that was the the main thing that I couldn't quite get past with this movie is Jack Nicholson is not an asshole. He's racist and homophobic and cruel to animals and anti-Semitic. I mean, I don't disagree with you. It's certainly quite the hurdle they've given themselves to get over. They start with the worst possible things this guy could do. And you're like, wow, this is what a way to start a feature. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we start with the premise. I'm not excusing anyone for being racist or homophobic or blah, 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 blah. I think what they're trying to do with the character is do this sort of thing where they're showing that he says these things to people to push everyone away from him and then he acts in a different way than that right because while he is saying horrible things to people because he wants to live in his solitary person bubble he is in the same at the same time doing this thing with the doctor to help her and taking care of the dog and inviting Greg Kinnear to move in with him and he's not necessarily acting in the way that he is speaking but there's no follow-up with all of the characters that he's been this way too, right? Like there's the scene where he's talking to the two Jewish characters in the diner when they're sitting at his table. Those people, that's their only interaction with him. Yes. And I mean, I agree with you. That's what they're trying to do. But he also still puts the dog down a trash chute at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, it's pretty bad. That's That's an action. (laughs) Well, but the point is his actions change over the course of the movie, right? It's not like he's always had this secret heart of gold. Yes, but I think if we can focus in on the dog in particular, his switch with the dog is so quick. And I think also interesting, right, for this character with OCD, because a a pet would be quite unclean. Mm -hmm. The turns were too quick, I think, in a lot of ways for me. I mean, I totally get that. I do wonder if my opinion about this movie was changed slightly because I did see it a long time ago. So I sort of was prepared for what was going to happen in it. I agree with you. No one would make this movie this way now. I do think Jack Nicholson is very good in it. I think that they're all very good in it. And it's just a struggle to watch someone be that horrible. 
so like, you know, it's a comedy, but I don't know that there were a lot of parts that really made me laugh. But it's always hard with comedy, right? Because yeah, yeah, comedy is comedy. So specific and what makes you laugh doesn't yep. necessarily mean a thing is intrinsically funny or not funny. Yeah. So that that was an issue. And then, yeah, I think some of the, the melodramatic parts, again, piano music in this is so like what you would expect. <laughs> I don't even remember it, really. It's It's a lot. To what extent do you feel at the end of the film her affection for Jack Nicholson is based on him changing as a person versus based on feeling grateful and needing to express that gratitude for what he's done for her son. Cause that was something I also couldn't really parse. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think that there's a lot going on with that. The, the romantic element of their relationship is one of the less successful things of the movie. I've always thought. Mm-hmm. And there's so many reasons why. Part of it is there's this weird power differential between them, right? Where he's done this amazing thing for her. She's always going to feel so grateful about it. And so then you're like, that's a weird place to start a relationship from. There's this age difference that always sort of feels like, is this a paternal thing? Is this romantic? What's going on with these two? And then there's also the element of he turns kind of nicer, but not all the way great (laughs) by the end of it, where you're sort of like, I don't know. I could buy... The end being she wants to be his friend or be in his life because she feels grateful and she sees that he's potentially trying to be a better person. But yeah, the romantic payoff has always been strange to me. Yeah. Helen Hunt is basically our age in the film. She's 34. And I was like, wow, if one of my friends showed up with Jack Nicholson, that character, I'd be like, what's happening? What's going on? (laughs) I didn't realize she was that young. I always think of Helen Hunt as being older. Well. That's because we saw her when we were eight and she was an adult. Exactly. But now we're She's always going to be so much older than me. How did we become adults? When did this happen? One thing I did like about this movie was there's a lot of little bit players who became much more famous later. And so there's a fun like spot the actor game you can play when watching this movie. So one of the Jewish people that he is horrible to in the restaurant is Lisa Edelstein, who is Cuddy on House. Mm -hmm. Jamie Kennedy plays one of the guys robbing Greg Kinnear. Maya Rudolph has a very small role as a police officer. She's just in the background of a scene. Oh, I didn't see Maya. It's Missy Pyle's first role. And then Wood Harris also has a very small role as a busboy at the restaurant. And I was like, oh, look at all these people. Look at all these people. This is fun. (laughs) That is fun. We mentioned Cuba Gooding Jr., but I will say I like Cuba Gooding Jr. in this. He's funny. I told you yesterday that one of the things I also liked about this movie, which is very small, is there's a scene, watch out for it, people, if you watch as good as it gets, where Cuba Gooding Jr. is having uh, a meal with Jack Nicholson at the diner, and he has ordered half a cantaloupe that is cut with little prongs on the side. It's very strange. I love it. (laughs) I didn't know you could order half a cantaloupe at a diner. Well, now you do. You're going to go to a diner and order that, and they're going to be like, we don't have that. You're going to be like, I saw it in as good as it gets. I want half a cantaloupe, please. Please make sure the edges of it are fancy. Yes. We haven't talked about Greg Kinnear's character. I think Greg's good. I mean, it's always interesting, I think, to watch a movie from the 90s with a gay character in it. You're like, what are we going to be doing here? (laughs) How's this going to be handled? It's interesting because he's sort of just left to be there for Jack Nicholson to say mean things and him to be like, wow, you're a dick. So I don't feel like they're making a statement about like, this is what a gay character is like as much as they're just putting a guy in the orbit of someone to say mean things <laughs> to him. Yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting to watch how an actor plays gay in 1997. Yeah. I mean, I think it's cool at least that you have this 
gay character that's supposed to be sympathetic. He's the one that we're yeah. rooting for in all of these interactions. And sure. he has a group of friends around him that are cool. He does have your traditional 90s, like his parents have disowned him. And there's that sort of trauma, mm-hmm. which you're just going to see a lot. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess, you know, again, comedy, your mileage will vary with any comedy. That's mm-hmm. just the way it is. Whether or not you find Jack Nicholson endearing enough to overcome how terrible he is, that's probably going to vary for you as well. It was a it was a bit of a bridge too far for me. And then, yeah, I'm I'm not sure the romance really worked. And that's a pretty significant component of this movie. And it's it's guys, it's two hours and 19 minutes. We're going to talk a lot about other comedies this year, which are primarily like a tight 90 100 minutes <laughs> keep it between 90 and 100 minutes and you're golden in my book all right i think moral of the story mostly for me is it is very much of its time they ain't making as good as it gets <laughs> today no okay should we talk about titanic <laughs> it's time to talk about titanic should we talk about our experience with titanic as yes. eight-year-olds to set the stage for what people are going to listen to i next. think that's an important part of our journey With Uh this film, because clearly it's been in our lives as it has been in the lives of everyone in the country for quite some time. Yes. And it's hard to avoid. You're going to have thoughts about it either way. Mm -hmm. So our experience, I think, was somewhat similar in that we were eight-year-old girls in 1997. And this movie came out. And I don't know if, if people know about this, if they are too young to remember it, but there was... A Leonardo DiCaprio fever that swept the nation. (laughs) Yes. Titanic fever, Leo fever. Leo fever. Would you say that every one of your friends was obsessed with him? Because uh, I would. I would say that as well. Yes. Which we were not obsessed with him. And to clarify, right, we became friends in high school. So we 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 did not know each other. We were living in completely different states. We were having these experiences in parallel, but very separately. And it was exceptionally irritating to hang Uh out with your friends and like, I want to talk Backstreet Boys. I want to talk Spice Girls. I want to talk, like, I'm, I'm saying there's a lot to talk about here, guys. It's 1997. I was having a similar thing with Sync, where I wanted to talk Backstreet Boys and everyone else wanted to talk Justin Timberlake. And I was You're like, You're having nah. a real bad time in 1997. <laughs> I'm giving options, right? Yeah, you have so many <laughs> options. But no, it's just all Leo all the time. And I didn't, I didn't care for him yeah, so I much. Didn't, I didn't get the whole thing. I mean, I would say... Because there was so much fervent admiration for Leonardo DiCaprio because of this movie, it took me years to come around on Leo. Way longer than it should have for someone who is in almost exclusively really good movies with really good performances. It took me a long time to come around on Leo. Yes, the frustration and resentment just I think built in our in our hearts and our souls to really to really make Titanic something that I hated and Leo someone that I hated and didn't want to see and yes it took years of him just being he's really good at picking scripts and like he really is of being in really consistently good movies that I really like to be like all right I will see a Leonardo DiCaprio picture but years people but years yes so Titanic Something that we are irritated by. But you know what? We're adults now. We can put that out of our heads, right? Yeah. That's a silly thing to hate a movie for. Just because your eight-year-old friends were obsessed with the male lead. That's dumb. Yeah. We, we don't have to focus on that. Let's talk about the merits of the picture. Where do we come down on that? Okay. 
let's start with our positives. Let's yeah, let's, yeah. let's lean in. We'll talk with people, and people will be like, "I love the costumes. I love the special effects. I love the sinking." Yeah. We rewatched this movie together, and I think technically it largely holds up. I, you know, it's some CGI. It's a lot of practical. I think it still does look pretty good. The oh yeah yeah yeah, and yeah, the costumes and set design are also good. Sure. I mean, it, yeah, it looks like rich people on a fancy ship. It, it In nineteen twelve. Yeah. <laughs> And the sinking scene, technically super impressive. Yeah. It looks great now, but I mean, it just, it's its a compelling shit, man. This giant ship splitting in half and sinking and all the people falling off of it and jumping off of it. And like, a lot's happening. I can't fault that. That's no. There's so much going on. You're like, this is very interesting. So if you love the movie for the costumes and the score yep. and the sinking, we're not going to argue with you on those components of the film. No. But I think we agree that it falls down in some places. Here's one question I have for you. When does the sinking start in this film? Oh, we did. We paused the movie. When was it? It was like an hour and a half left? Something like that. An hour 40 maybe left in the movie. (laughs) An hour 40 left in the movie is what I just said, right? Remember how we just said that was the ideal length for a movie? So yeah, you're you're waiting for a bit for it to happen. And mm-hmm. how was the experience of the waiting for the sinking to begin for you? N- n- not not so good. Not so good. We had said during the film that if the movie were the hour 40 sinking plus an additional 20 minutes lead in. Sure. Okay, maybe that's a great film. Well, and right? I don't you don't even need the whole hour 40 because we'll talk about the bookends, but if you lose the bookend at the end, yeah. You, that's it becomes what? An hour 20? We add yeah. 20 minutes of intro a tiny bit of outro. It's a great movie. Yeah. But what we get at the beginning is, A, this framing device. Ooh, the framing device. So the movie starts with a team. The wreckage of the Titanic has been discovered. They're going down. It's present day. They have their little submersibles and they are looking for the heart of the sea, which is this big diamond that was on the ship. Mm-hmm. So this framing device at the beginning is like 30 or 40 minutes long. Yeah, at that point, it ceases to become a framing device and starts to become the beginning of a different movie. Mm-hmm. You, you've you've made the first 30 minutes of an entirely separate film, and then for some reason, you've tacked them onto this period piece about the sinking of the Titanic. <laughs> so they find a safe. What they find in the safe is a drawing of a nude woman wearing the necklace. And they put it on the news and they're like, does anyone know who this woman is or what we can do about this? And this older woman sees the drawing on the news and is like, oh, my God, that's me. I got to go talk to these people. Yep. And so she goes to the ship in the middle of the ocean to talk to these people. And the rest of the movie, that's not the framing device, because sometimes we'll cut back to the framing device, too. But the rest of the movie is her telling the story of where the necklace is. The question that Bill Paxton, the lead of the diving team, wants to know the answer to is, what happened to the necklace? I think he's willing to put up with a little bit of old lady rigmarole. He knows she's <laughs> going to be telling some more than just specifically where the necklace is. So eh, she's definitely leaning into the, here's what happened on the ship of it yes. all. So now we cut back to... Before the Titanic sets sail and everyone's getting on the boat. And we meet mm-hmm. the young version of her, Rose. We meet her fiancé, Caledon Hockley. 
Caledon Hockley, everyone. Yes. Prime name. And we meet Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Jack, who through a poker game wins tickets to get onto the Titanic. And there's a a class divide thing happening. Jack Mm -hmm. is poor. He's in third class. She is very wealthy with her fiance in first class. She meets Jack when she tries to jump off the boat because she's so stifled by living her rich life. So she tries to kill herself. Jack saves her. They begin a romance. The bulk of the flashback is their romance until we get to that last hour and 40, which is the ship sinking. And then for some reason, she really broadens out the scope of her storytelling to include all kinds of other people that had never been in the story before, but that she wasn't present for. (laughs) Exactly. She's sort of making it up as she goes along, I guess. Yeah. So I guess you could think of this movie as being a lot of different things. I would say... At this point in the public memory, I feel like it's mostly known as a love story between Mm -hmm. Jack and Rose. Unless I guess you're one of those people who's like, oh, but the sinking, when people ask why you love the movie so much. Sure. How does the romance of Jack and Rose work for you? I would say it doesn't. We had an an interesting experience. I I don't know when the last time I saw Titanic was. It's It's been a really long time. Possibly I rewatched it in college. I can't quite remember, though, but it's been a while. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things we noticed is, which is, again, feels crazy because this movie is three hours and 14 minutes long, is it felt like there were story beats in their romance that were missing from the film or something. (laughs) (laughs) So people will recall the probably the more famous elements of their story, the, you know, him saving her from jumping off the ship is how they meet. And then they go to this dinner as a thank you for him. And then he invites her to go dancing with him in the lower decks with all of the the poors that she's never met before. Yes. And so then what I had forgotten was what happens after this late night dance event of theirs. Yes. Honestly, if you had asked me, I might have thought that the late night dance and the drawing her, like one of her French girls in the car was like all the it same call could have been night. one night. Yeah, as yeah. far as I remember. But it wasn't. No. There's a pretty hard cut in the dancing scene to the next morning where then Rose is having breakfast with her fiance, Caledon Hockley. Hockley, if you'll recall. <laughs> yes. And he gets very upset with her because she didn't come to him the night before. And I think he probably suspects that she's, you know, hanging out with the street rat. Yeah. Well, and also he gave her the heart of the ocean and expected yeah. some bedtime repayment for it, I believe. Right. So she has a scene with him. And then there's a scene with her mom where her mom is like, you know, you have to marry him. Otherwise, we'll be destitute because your father racked up a bunch of debt and then died or something. Like an asshole. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then we have a scene where she is in church on the boat. So all the rich people are in church together in this room. The pastor, your priest i don't know is leading a service and jack runs up and he's like i gotta talk to her he's going to interrupt the church service because he has to speak with her so desperately and you're like why buddy yeah it plays like they've had a falling out and he needs to reach her to be like i'm sorry or like i you know this could still work out but we didn't see a falling out between them We saw two people have a lovely evening together. They Mm -hmm. were bonding. They were having a great time. Then somehow they part, presumably on favorable terms because they had such a great time. And then the very next day, he is like, my life will be over if I don't talk to you in the middle of this church service. And you're like, what? Why? (laughs) Can't you see her after the church service? 
<laughs> yeah. Can, can you just walk around the deck and find her like you've been doing to talk to her since you guys started up your whole relationship? And I just it's there's this sense of urgency that comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Very confusing. So that's the story beat that seems to be missing. And then they do eventually re-meet and have a conversation and I guess make up from whatever falling out we didn't see where he explains to her like you could do whatever you want you don't have to live this life trapped of being a rich lady and then i guess we get the draw me like one of your french girls oh yeah yeah, yeah. that happens after they've already had this falling out we never saw and the the getting back together that we never saw it's really strange that again this movie's over three hours long and seems to be missing parts of their like they were like we don't need that because we got to make way for this 40 minute framing device and the hour 40 sinking so like slash and hack the love story as much as possible mm-hmm. and again just to remind everyone bill paxton asked what happened to the necklace and she decides to include the story that they had sex in the back of a car down yeah below. she's like and then it, we steamed that shit up my hand was leaving marks on the window. Like, she's really getting into this story. Yeah. So hopefully Bill Paxton is enjoying that. Well, I, they do cut back to them, and the people are crying while she's telling them the she story. She's an so incredible storyteller. <laughs> she should have directed the movie. Honestly. So, yeah. And then, you know, everybody remembers what happens then with the French girl and the, the drawing and the sex, and the he gets framed for stealing the heart of the ocean, and then the ship is sinking. Mm-hmm. All right, great. The ship is sinking. The action has finally begun a million hours into this movie. So then I think interesting things happen because there's, I find myself uninterested in the Jack and Rose stuff as it happens. I think just generally mm-hmm. the characters are not that interesting and the dialogue is bad. And then I'm left just sort of, eh, I don't care about these people. Let's move on to the next thing. So there is interesting stuff in the sinking because there are long sequences where you could sort of forget that they exist. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just left with all these other people dealing with the sinking of the ship, which is obviously very interesting. I mean, the yeah. sinking of the ship, that's that's drama. People trying to get onto the lifeboats, you know, what's happening with third class, what's happening with the men. Mm-hmm. Cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. It's cool to look at, but also emotional. Ten times more emotional than anything happening with Jack and Rose. I mean, yes, we we love this part where a man is putting his daughter on a lifeboat with the daughter's mother and the daughter's freaking out. because She's like, you're coming with us, daddy. He's like, this is a lifeboat for mommies and children. There's another lifeboat for daddies. I'll be on the lifeboat for daddies. And you know there's no lifeboat there's for daddies. There's no lifeboat for daddies. He's going down with that <laughs> shit. So sad. <laughs> That's great. I mean, the like non-dialogue scenes have always been my favorite part when it's sinking and they cut to like this woman reading to her children in their bed down in third class because she just Mm -hmm. knows they're not going to get out. So she's like, I guess this is what we're doing so that I don't have to freak out my children. There's a shot of a couple of old people hugging each other in their bed as the ship sinks. You're just like, what's their story? (laughs) We haven't mentioned Victor Garber yet as the the engineer for the ship, but there's the scene with him as the ship is going down and he's like, I'm sorry, I didn't build a better boat he tried though he He tried to build a better boat he told them they should have more lifeboats he did he did so that stuff's great i do have one pet peeve in the sinking scene okay which is when we're cutting back to rose and jack they are pretty consistently quarter half more than half submerged in the water of the boat and they do not get hypothermia until they are 
outside of the ship. Yeah, people will recall this is very, very far north. They did just hit an iceberg after all, and the water is cold as shit. I love basically near freezing. No, it's more than freezing. It's more than freezing. The ocean's a solution. The salt means that the water can be below freezing. The water was 28 degrees. That's real cold. It's real cold. And they're fine being in the water as long as the water's in the ship. But everyone, the water in the ship, just as cold as the water outside the ship. So as much as this movie is aiming for some kind of scientific accuracy around the sinking of the ship, all the scenes with them in the water in the boat nonsense they should I mean, have gotten hypothermia and died extra way fascinating because kate winslet got hypothermia filming it yeah <laughs> but they just didn't think that that was something worth including in the film okay so that is one of my pet peeves yep but anyway but anyway i'll say both of us big fans of billy zane we love Billy Zane in this movie. He is so arch. Oh, he's the archest. I mean, you've never seen a villain like Billy Zane in this movie. It's crazy they didn't give him a mustache to twirl. Uh-huh. There was one line in particular we loved from him when he's trying to get on a lifeboat and he says to the guy manning it, is there any room for a gentleman on this boat? Gentleman? Gentleman. <laughs> we were voting that for the rest of the day. That's right, Billy. Fl- flirt your way onto the ship. The the archness and campiness of Billy Zane works with how bad the dialogue is. The mm-hmm. bad dialogue doesn't work in a romance we're supposed to take seriously. So that's, I think, the difference between what Billy Zane is doing. So arch, so camp, so wonderful. And what's happening with Leo and Kate, mm-hmm. which is supposed to be, I think, more grounded. Yes. So then, I mean, I guess just to spoil it for anyone, if there's one person in the world who has never seen Titanic, we do finally get. We get to the end. The ship is sunk. Jack, you've all heard about the door. Could they both fit on the door? Just watch the Mythbusters episode. That's all Mm -hmm. we'll say about that. Jack dies. She lives. She manages to not have to interact with Billy Zane. She goes off to start a new life, becomes a whole different person. And then in our framing device, you got to get the payoff because there is a reason, I guess, that we spent 45 minutes in a framing device that had nothing to do with the story. Whatever became of the heart of the ocean? That's what we were looking for, right? Mm -hmm. She claims it was lost at sea, but it turns out she's had it all along. Billy Zane accidentally gave her his coat that had the heart of the ocean in the pocket during the sinking. She's held onto it for all this time. Why? Unclear. But now... Now that she's had the closure of telling this story to a bunch of strangers on a ship, she is free to get rid of it, I guess, for some sort of symbolic reason. And she throws it off the boat back into the ocean. The heart of the ocean returns Mm -hmm. to the ocean. Yes. How do we feel about that as the end of the film? I mean, the issue is, right, we're not caught up in the love story. So it's it's just... Well, but here's the, the thing. If we are caught up in the love story, I still don't understand it. I mean, does the heart of the ocean represent her love for Jack in some way? Why? He didn't give it to her. She wore it while he drew her. But she was given that stone by a guy she fucking hated and was almost forced to marry. Why does it represent her love for Jack? That's a great question. I've, I've never understood it. What does it mean that she throws it into the ocean? I don't get it at all. It's a great question, Maddie. I don't know, but it does allow for also the Britney Spears Oops, I Did It Again video to exist where the astronaut tells her that he went down to the ocean and got it back for her baby. 
I, so. To be fair, that might have made the whole thing worth it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that question. I guess she's sort of happy that she has it because it means Billy Zane doesn't, which is a delight, to be fair. Sure. You know he's really mad about the fact that he accidentally lost it. Mm-hmm. But then to me, it feels like her getting rid of it should be her letting go of her resentment for Billy Zane. It should have nothing to do with Jack. I think you're right. I think it doesn't quite track. Okay. Well. I mean, she's letting go of the whole experience. I guess. And then let's talk about the fact that she goes to a heaven where it's only the people from the Titanic and Jack in the heaven, even though she married a guy and was super happy and they had a great life together. Yeah, and she had a bunch of kids with that guy. Her kids aren't in the heaven, are going to be in the heaven. Just her and Jack. It's just Jack. Dancing. Forever. It did lead us to have some interesting discussions about if, if the afterlife is somehow location specific. Those are right. the people she's with because those are the ghosts of the people that are there. Yeah, because she died on the boat after she put the heart of the ocean in uh, the ocean. And so, like, your, is your heaven just everyone who died within a, you know, 100 foot radius? of you and obviously those are the only people who've really died in that part of the ocean it's a great question food for thought (laughs) there's a cool movie in that idea yeah i don't know titanic what is there to say we had an another thought so this is what there is to say what if steven spielberg had directed titanic oh i mean it hurts my heart to even imagine that there there's a world out there where steven spielberg's the one who directed it God, we would have been sobbing is what would have happened if Steven Spielberg had directed it. Can you imagine if we were actually emotionally connected to the characters that this happened to? Honestly, we came up with a couple of scenarios. So we realized that there probably wouldn't be a love story because Steven Spielberg movies don't usually center around a romance. I mean, I, I guess if you'd asked me, I would have said that, but we went through his movies and he's made basically one movie where romance is the center of the story and everything yes. else is about like family or something like that. Those are the connections that you're getting. Right. So there's a potential story where we really center in on Victor Garber and he has sort of a father, daughter, father, son relationship with either Jack or Rose as he's teaching them about shipbuilding and then as we're going through the sinking right we're really focusing on that element we also thought there's just like an interesting story to tell because our friend who we watched it with amanda knows a lot of stuff about the titanic because she loves this movie yeah and she was like you know the engineers were on the ship the whole time and they were trying to keep it from sinking i'm like well why didn't we see all the engineers working through the problem of trying to keep the ship from sinking that would have been fascinating yeah or we're just focusing on a family right like a third class family and then we get to that scene that's already super sad but then we know them oh i might have died there's no way i could have handled it so anyway missed opportunities missed opportunities yeah but billy zane come on billy zane's great victor garber's great what's her face who plays mrs brown is also fun oh yeah kathy bates Bates. kathy bates 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 is is fun i mean everybody who's not jack and rose is putting in a solid effort i think (laughs) not that they weren't trying i don't want to say they weren't trying and we and we again we've come around on Leonardo DiCaprio and we like Kate Winslet. Yeah, like, they're we don't both have great actors. actors. <laughs> but if you give great actors dumb characters and bad dialogue, you know it's not going to be that great. Boy, I don't I don't know what to do about this because we're never going to be free of Titanic. No. It doesn't go away. It's the definition of cultural impact in a it cinematic really feature. 
So Julius. we just have to make peace with it. But we are certainly angry about it winning Best Picture. That is factually true. Yep. I mean, as we've we've had this discussion running throughout this podcast, is it okay for something to be nominated for technical achievement or directorial mm-hmm. achievement or whatever? And I think we're sort of on the, like, sure, it can be nominated. I, I'm not arguing really that this shouldn't be nominated because no. he did a lot of work. It's all there on the screen. It was yeah. a difficult movie to make. Nobody's arguing with that. But should it win for that alone? I don't think so. No. That's, I guess, where I stand on it. That's Titanic. I think that's all of our thoughts about Titanic. I, I mean, the Spielberg else. thing is a real stake to the heart, you know? I wish it is. <laughs> I don't know why you had to think of that, because now I'm going to be wishing I lived in that universe. Because here's the thing. Steven also would have crushed the sinking. Oh, obviously. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> all right. Well, really, we watched it again. I don't see any time in my foreseeable future where i will be rewatching titanic so no i think we're free yeah that's nice that's a that's a silver lining of all it always this. is <laughs> shall we move it along yes i think we had a yes no in the full monty i think so we that's did what we should talk about the full monty is about sheffield in england a mm-hmm. steel town that had fallen on some economic hard times industry moved out the industry moved out so we've got a lot of guys out of work who used to work at the steel mill in the town and the premise for the movie is a chippendale show comes through town and all of the women in the town are super excited about the chippendales and yeah. our main guys are like "Ugh, what is this freaking chippendales situation and one of them sneaks in to see it and sees that all of the women are really psyched about it and has a moment of inspiration. <laughs> well, he also learns how much money the Chippendales make from one show. Correct. A moment of inspiration that if these Chippendales guys can strip and make all this money, why can't we? So he starts rallying his, you know, friend, his best friend from childhood or whatever. And then they start to put together a team. Our main guy has a child with his ex and he is behind on his child support payments and he can't get a job they end up dragging in tom wilkins into the mix who's their former boss because they see him dancing ballroom with his wife and so they decide he can somehow (laughs) give them advice he can choreograph their striptease and so they pull together all these people it ends up being like six or seven guys i think that are involved in the show it's about self-worth like mark addy's character feels really bad about not making money his wife has a job there's all of this going on he feels bad about his body because he's not ripped (laughs) some of the other guys who are in the dance and so you know it's about self-empowerment and the one guy finds a way to use this to to get some money together and he's bonding with his son is what's happening through the process of it but then, of course, sort of gets in trouble later because he has a son around a bunch of guys training <laughs> to do a strip yes. dance. And so basically, they all sort of go through their highs and lows. Two of the guys on the team fall in love with each other. They do. Loved that. Yes. <laughs> and then it gets to the time for the big show. Everyone's sort of laughing at the concept of them even doing this because they're just normal guys. And they've been promising that the reason people should come to their show instead of Chippendales is that they will get fully naked. They will show the, do full the full Monty. Monty. Yeah. <laughs> So they put up their posters, people show up for the show, and then our main guy has 
crisis of confidence and almost doesn't go out and do it. And then he gets some words of inspiration. He does it. They do the show. Everyone has a great time. I was delighted. (laughs) (laughs) What are your thoughts on the full Monty? I like this movie. I was a bit marginal on my my yes, no on this one. I thought it was cute. That's my real word for it. I agree with you. I love that two of the guys on the team ended up being gay. Oh, it was so precious. Um, and I liked the storyline with Dave, who's probably the most insecure, and his wife, who really loves him. Which She was really does. They have a lovely sweet. marriage. <laughs> they do. And, you know, the backdrop is a, a serious subject, the leaving of industry, the loss of these jobs. Yeah, it was interesting watching this movie, too, in terms of all the other many, many films we've watched about fragile masculinity. Mm-hmm. Obviously, losing your job is stressful and and difficult but it's more about their underlying concerns of not oh i can't eat and like yes there's a storyline about him not being able to afford child support payments but it's really like i am no longer a man because i'm not making money and i'll disappoint my wife and i can't tell my wife these things yeah the tom wilkinson story in particular (laughs) he's doing the classic thing of pretending he's going to work every day and he is not going to work it's been like six months and he hasn't told her that he's been laid off so he's walking quite the you know high wire act trying to make all this happen and of course his wife is planning vacations and buying new stuff and he's like (laughs) this is all gonna come to a head at some point and so yeah i was you know of two minds about that obviously that's what the movie is about but also like i don't know if i we've just watched enough movies about this and i'm like oh my god just tell your wife you lost your job jesus you watch enough of them and you're like men are so freaking fragile get it together (laughs) no But yeah, I so I was marginal again. I like it. I don't know that I find it super substantial for me. It feels a little insubstantial. It is fun to think about this little comedy, though, winning Best Picture. I will admit it was it was crazy successful. They made it on a three point five million dollar budget and it made two hundred and fifty eight million dollars, which good for them. Hell yeah. It connected with people. I'm obviously I'm not here to be like this is clearly the best picture of the it's of a masterpiece. Year and blah blah blah. It's a masterpiece. <laughs> it made me feel warm and fuzzy. I ended this movie with a huge smile on my face, and I was like, mm-hmm. I can't be mad about it. You know, I had a great time, <laughs> and they grew and they learned and they had a good time and they danced and they became proud of their bodies. It was really nice. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. Mark Addy, I loved. He's so charming. He was good. He's delightful. Tom Wilkinson was very funny. It's a good cast and just a fun time. And yeah, you're right. It would have been a interesting David and Goliath sort of story, especially if it had beaten Titanic. <laughs> but it's a fun time. If you haven't seen The Full Monty, I liked it a lot. Yeah. Oh, and I got to say, the scene when they're all waiting in line and Hot Stuff comes on after they've been training and they all start, they like can't help but be dancing along to Hot Stuff while they're waiting in line for something else. Yeah. I loved it. Oh, and to our earlier point, this movie, this comedy, tight, yeah. 130. 90 uh, minutes, baby. That's so amazing. 90 minutes is the perfect length for a film. I mean, the thing with a 90-minute movie is even if you're not having a great time, it's not even It's going to be over soon. All right. That's the full month. Okay. Shall we talk about our nose in alphabetical order, I guess? Let's start with Goodwill Hunting. Yes. Yeah, so Goodwill Hunting is about a character named... Will, Will hunting. hunting. And he's he, good. Yeah. He grew up in Southie, which is a, a sort of working class part of Boston. Yep. But he is a 
genius. He's the smartest guy who ever lived. And yeah. he's working as a janitor at MIT as part of his parole, I think, right? But yeah, you got to have a job, but he's picked yeah. that job for specific reasons. Yes. It's pretty far from where he lives. He has to travel pretty far to get there. He's waxing the floors one day and a, a math professor has put a math problem out on a board in the hallway and whoever can solve this math problem will get mad kudos and maybe some other awards. I can't remember. And so the kids are like, oh, it's a real toughie, but Will solves it right away. And then there's a little mystery about who who solved the math yeah, problem. Yeah, because he just wrote it on a blackboard in the hallway and no one yeah. knows who has done it. And so the math department gets together and they devise a more difficult problem to smoke out this guy. Yeah. And the math professor is played by Stellan Skarsgård. And so they put this more difficult problem on. He's leaving the classroom one day and he sees Will working on it. And they're like, hey, don't don't touch that. You janitor, you're messing it up. And so he starts chasing after Will and then his assistant is like, come back. He solved it. And so then they have to track down Will and they find him through the facilities department. And so Stellan Skarsgård wants to bring him in to work on math and help him live up to his potential as a mathematician. But he's real difficult. He grew up in foster care. He's had an emotionally really hard life. Mm -hmm. He lashes out at people. He acts out. He's been in and out of prison. He's in prison when Stellan finds him. He is. He, He got into a fight with a guy on the street and has been put back in prison. And so it's part of his parole this time, Stellan will have him come in and do math, but he also has to go to therapy two times a week. Mm-hmm. And so Stellan goes through and tries to find him a therapist. All the therapists are like, he's too difficult. And so eventually Stellan goes to his former college roommate and is like, I really need your help with this. You're the only one who can do it. It's Robin Williams. And so <sighs> he sets Will on this path with Robin Williams. Also, meanwhile, Will has met this girl at a Harvard bar played by Minnie Driver. And, and so th- We're following him as Stellan is trying to get him to really focus in on his math and, again, live up to his potential. He's having this interesting relationship with Robin Williams as they're working through therapy. And also he has this romance with Minnie Driver. And that's sort of the structure of the film from then on. So thoughts? Thoughts. I I love Goodwill Hunting. I think it's great. I've seen it probably several times in my life. We have already talked on this podcast when we did Ordinary People about how much we love therapy scenes, but this has some of the best therapy scenes in the business. Even if you haven't seen the movie, I'm sure you will have seen parodied (laughs) the it's not your fault scene from this movie. I know. It's not your fault. I know. It's not your fault. I know. It's not your fault. (laughs) (laughs) It's great. Robin Williams is great. And Matt Damon and Ben Affleck had written this movie as nobodies. We didn't talk about Ben Affleck. He plays mm-hmm. Will's best friend in this. In a, They have a whole group of guys that they're friends with. I think Ben's great in it. This is one mm-hmm. of my favorite Ben roles. Because he's funny, which I always want Ben to be. I don't like when he's too self-serious. But then he does get a great scene in it towards the end where um, Will is really rejecting everyone you know, he's so smart that everyone's like, well, uh, this is amazing. Like, you, you got to do go, something with this. You got to go do amazing math stuff. And he's like, well, why should I have to go do amazing math stuff? I don't even really like math. Just because I'm good at it, I have to do it. I want to hang out with my friends. Yeah. And so they're having this moment on the construction site they're working at where they're having a talk about where they're going to be in 10 years. And he's like, well, I mean, I'm just going to be here and living next to you. And we're going to raise our kids together. And we're going to go to games and, and hang out. And... 
Ben Affleck gets to be like, you cannot do that. Like, if you are still here living next to me in 10 years and, and raising your kid and working on the construction site, I'm going to kill you because like this is a problem and and he's like what don't give me that you know i owe it to myself and he tells him no you don't owe it to yourself you owe it to me any Mm -hmm. one of us would kill to have what you've got and you can't just hang out here and do nothing with it and he gives him that beautiful speech about how the best part of his day every day is when he shows up at will's house and he walks to the door and he hopes that when he knocks on the door will just won't be there he won't Mm -hmm. even have said goodbye he'll just be gone and then that's what happens. It does. It does happen. Yeah. Once Will has worked through all of his trauma, and he's perfectly healthy and better now from- hundred uh, percent. That's how therapy works. From like six months of therapy. <laughs> he decides to go after Minnie Driver. The two of them have broken up for various him pushing her away reasons. And she's yeah. moved across the country to go to med school. And so he decides to leave and follow her. Yes, instead of taking a job that he had- gotten through Stellan Skarsgård. Yes. He chooses the girl, which is part of his conversation and dynamic and development with Robin Williams as well. Yes, because Robin Williams' character has lost his wife to a long-term illness a few years earlier, and he still is working through that. And so they have a lot of conversations about whether or not he regretted the time that he spent with his wife because he's so sad now. (laughs) And, (laughs) And he, you know, makes it very clear that Of course, he doesn't regret any of the time he spent with her because she was his soulmate. It's your classic, should I shut down and feel nothing? Or is it better to love and to have lost than to have never loved at all? It's better to have loved and lost. It's that. It's all that. Yes. It's that that conversation. What are your thoughts? I don't know if you've said that many thoughts. So this was, I think, just the second time I'd seen this movie. I think I watched it for the first time with you because you love this movie. I do. And I liked it. It's not flawless for me some of the scenes are are pretty written it does feel like you know oh it's very written (laughs) yeah I think in particular I was bothered by the scene where he first meets Minnie Driver and so Ben Affleck comes up to Minnie Driver is hitting on her pretending he goes to Harvard and an asshole grad student is like oh yeah you clearly don't let me challenge you with some bullshit and then Matt steps in and is like oh I know way more than you but it was so specific in a way that I don't particularly like it. And it's why had he read all those specific books? It's I think just... it, you're just supposed to know that he remembers everything he's ever read is his yeah. thing. And and he's read apparently all the stuff because he just reads whatever <laughs> there is to read. Yes. It was a little too specific for me. I don't particularly love that whole bit. Another thing about this movie that I find a little strange is the relationship between Robin Williams and Selen Skarsgård. It's so they were roommates in college, mm-hmm. but it plays to me almost a little bit like they were in the same field. Like they have a very intense relationship for college really roommates. <laughs> And Stellan Skargar seems upset that Robin Williams also didn't live up to his potential, but in psychology? Yeah. What does that mean? And why is he so upset about it? I don't really know what it would have meant for him to live up to his potential in psychology. But there's something like, something happened with these two. Because they have some kind of history. They're really dramatically upset with each other for whatever has happened back in the day. Right. What would your college roommate have had to do for you to be like, we have this this battle and you didn't live up to your potential? Well, and- yeah, it's that you didn't live up to your potential. That's the interesting thing of it. Part of it is they're very different people. They have different outlooks. Obviously, Stellan's sure. character values very different things than Robin Williams' character does. 
it's the intensity of the relationship that's interesting to me. It's like they were in love or something in college and this is the or it almost plays like they were brothers who grew up together and or something had plans yeah because he's he, well he's mad at him for not living up to his potential but also he feels judged by him they both feel judged by each other which is part of the problem but this is a person who you knew for like three years in your 20s this isn't a foundational relationship to my being i'll just let it go <laughs> It seems somehow foundational for them. I know. I So I think that part is a little weird. I, obviously, that dynamic is there for the push and pull of, for Will yeah. to be, should I follow my math genius? Should I follow happiness through interpersonal relationship? But I don't know that we need to keep cutting back to them having conversations. Also, like 90% of their conversations is Stellan Skarsgård being like, have you ever heard of Einstein? Have you ever heard of so-and-so? Have you ever heard of this guy? Well, this guy. <laughs> they had that conversation two or three times in the movie. And I'm like, this is this is your one rhetorical approach, Stellan. Well, he's only a math genius. He's not a rhetorical genius. I like it. I mean, I think it is very clearly made by smart young people. This was a script written by people in their 20s, and it shows, but I still really like it. It's not perfect, but I think it is a great movie. Fun to watch. And I cried. Good. I think I don't like it quite as much as you, but that's fair enough. Okay. LA Confidential. LA Confidential. This is a noir. It is Mm -hmm. pretty densely plotted, so I don't know if we want to get into all of the twists and turns. It feels like a lot. So the inciting incident of LA Confidential is Mickey Cohen, who was the head of organized crime in LA, has gone to prison for tax evasion, as they always do. Mm -hmm. And so now there's a power vacuum in LA. Shortly after that happens, there is an incident at a police Christmas party where they bring in a bunch of Hispanic people who supposedly beat up some cops. And the cops at the Christmas party beat up these prisoners. It's there. The press is there for a totally different reason. They capture it. And so there's fallout from that. And so we're really following three cops in this film who are all terrible and corrupt in their own (laughs) unique ways. Yep. Guy Pierce, who was not involved in that fracas, who is very political, very ambitious. He's willing to turn on all the cops who are involved to advance his own career. And he does seem to have like some sense that the corruption in the LAPD is bad, but not enough to like really care. We're also following a Kevin Spacey who was involved, but he is also very image concerned. He consults on a cop TV show. And so he also turns on at least a couple of the other cops who they end up deciding like, we'll get rid of some guys who have their pensions and one guy who is just a shitty cop who we hate. And that shitty cop is Russell Crowe, who is our last cop that we're really following his partner. Russell Crowe is very like concerned about justice, but is willing to do whatever it takes to get there. And he really has a bee in his bonnet about domestic violence. So that's a recurring Truly, thing for him. He really does. And so after the fallout from this Christmas event, there is a shooting, like a mass shooting at a diner. And the former partner of Russell Crowe is killed as part of that. And so then from there, this plot sort of unfolds. And what we're trying to figure out is what really happened in this diner shooting and what is happening with this power vacuum that's the result of Mickey Cohen going to prison. And we go back and forth with these three cops we're kind of following. There's also something happening with David Strathairn, who you always love to see. Oh, yeah. 
he runs like a high class prostitution ring where the prostitutes are surgically altered to look like movie stars, but he's also like in bad business. And it turns out that the person trying to fill the the vacuum of Mickey Cohen is the chief of police who's played by what's James Cromwell, who you also always love to see. You do. I mean, the cast is in this movie is really good. Yeah. And he's been both working to fill that power vacuum and tying up loose ends along the way. And all these things sort of like interweave and interconnect and turn around. And there's a subplot too, where they framed three black youths for the shooting initially. And then it turns out it wasn't them. And it's pretty densely plotted and twisty and turny. And I don't want to get into it, but yeah, that's the big things. Oh, and Kevin Spacey is also working. He works with a tabloid guy to raise his profile. So the tabloid guy will come to me like, these two are going to be doing cocaine together. Come give the arrest and we'll get the photos. And so that's, yeah. that's happening too. And that tabloid guy is Danny DeVito. Yeah. Again, cast. It's good. So good. How'd you feel about LA Confidential? I wanted to like it more than I did, I guess is how mm-hmm. I will start. I felt like there was, I had a lot of expectations, which is a problem because I've heard people say that they love this movie for, you know, ever. And it's obviously full of amazing actors. And you're like, this should be a good time. I like a noir. It's going to be great. There were definitely things that I liked a, little bit, a lot about it. And there were th- mm-hmm. things that I didn't like as much. I couldn't really stand Guy Pierce or Russell Crowe's characters. So that was a bit of an issue. <laughs> since they're definitely our main guys i really liked kevin spacey and danny devito kim basinger i didn't get i feel like that was another one of those weird female characters where you're like i don't really know what we're doing with her here why is she so interested in russell crowe the two of them have a a romance we didn't say then guy pierce's character goes to her and then they're fighting and then they're fucking and you're like i don't understand this either I liked that James Cromwell was evil. I never Mm -hmm. see James Cromwell be evil. I thought that there's definitely a lot going on in the plot, which can be fun. I like the twists and reveals. The story with them framing the black guys, but then also they were these horrible rapists. There was just, there was a lot going on there. I don't know. I, I'm I'm unclear about how to feel about it. I left it and I was like, I just, I don't know if it wasn't what I expected exactly. But I was left kind of unsatisfied. Yeah. So I'd seen this movie before and I realized rewatching it like I didn't really remember it super well. I don't know if it's because it's so twisty that my brain was just like, who can hold on to all of this? Yeah, it's like <laughs> these are unimportant. <laughs> the yeah. twists and turns. Eh. I think there is something interesting happening. It is a very damning portrayal of the LAPD. I don't, yes. you know, which is also interesting. Which is like, good. I thought the Guy Pierce character was interesting. I will say I loved all of the business with him about his glasses. That I was the glasses I was really part was funny. <laughs> Definitely. He wears glasses and so they keep telling him if he wants to be in homicide, he can't wear glasses because no one in homicide wears glasses. But of yeah. course he needs them to see. So then every <laughs> yeah. time they're showing up somewhere where he has to potentially use his gun, he's like forgotten his glasses somewhere. Right. And- <laughs> or he so takes funny. them off for a photo. So I enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you about Kim Basinger. I wasn't really in love with all that, especially at the beginning of her relationship with Russell Crowe, where he specifically says to her, like, why are we doing this? And she's like, I don't know. And I'm like, like way well, to get out of this scriptwriter. <laughs> How are we supposed to know? Like, the screener is like, why would this lady love this man? I don't know. Okay, let's just have them say that. And then uh, I guess we're fine. Yeah. And then, yeah, I thought the ending was a little ambivalent about the Russell Crowe and the Guy Pierce character. Are we supposed to, at the end be like, 
you know what? These guys, yeah, they both keep being like, you know, oh, yeah, we we did some things we shouldn't have done. But in the end, we got justice. And, you know, I'll let the police department be corrupt for a little while longer because it benefits me. But we'll get to the top. And you're like, I don't think this is good. No, I mean, Russell Crowe's getting out, I guess, which is probably the only thing you should be yeah. doing. <laughs> but I think the movie thinks it's good at the end and we're supposed to be all happy that they both have connected with Kim Basinger and it's just kind of weird. Yeah. Because, yeah, I guess we should say all of this falls apart in a giant shootout with Cromwell and his many, many people that all work for him. And it mm-hmm. comes down to basically Russell Crowe's gotten shot. You think he's dead. I was surprised yeah. that he was alive at the end. Me too. Then Guy Pierce ends up being the last one standing. And, and earlier in the movie, Cromwell has posed to him a question of like if you think you want to be in homicide you have to be able to answer these questions would you be willing to plant evidence if you were sure someone was guilty would you be willing to like do all these various corrupt things to quote like quote unquote for the for the greater good is how he's selling it to him and one of the questions he asked him is would you be willing to shoot a suspect in the back to so that he couldn't you know go to trial and then get away with it and he answers no to all of these of course at first mm-hmm. And then he is left in a situation in their final scene where he can either just let Cromwell get away with it. And Cromwell's like, I'm going to make this all good. It's just you and me alive and I'll tell the story and everything's going to be fine. And he it chooses to shoot Cromwell in the back and tell his own version of the story. And then because there's so much dirt that's potentially going to be exposed, the DA and whoever else is responsible for this is just sort of like, well, I guess we'll just let this guy be in charge and we'll sweep everything under the rug and it'll all be fine. And then, yeah, Guy Pierce is like, I'm getting one over on them because they're using me, so I'm using them. And you're like, okay. Yeah. Because <laughs> he never really had... He wouldn't do this really corrupt things, but I guess only to keep himself clean for his future advancement because he doesn't seem to really have this innate sense of justice or anything. Right. And yeah, to your earlier point, too, with the the black kids that they frame for the shooting at the Night Owl, which is where Russell Crowe's former partner ends up dying. It is an interesting component of showing like, yes, the LAPD, again, corrupt, racist. They're willing to frame these three black kids. But then, yeah, at the same time, the only black characters in the movie are horrible criminals. Yeah. They were keeping a woman captive and raping her. And you're like, the movie's not really giving us black characters who aren't the worst people you've ever seen. Yeah. So that's And it's not, not making a statement of they're taking innocent black people and framing them or ruining their yeah. lives in some way. They're taking horrible black people <laughs> and blaming them for their own crimes. And for something like, different. <laughs> like, don't worry about it. They're still terrible. Yeah. And I'm like, I am worried about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm worried <laughs> about, about this. this. And then Russell Crowe's character, as you mentioned, has this be in his bonnet about domestic violence because as we learn his father was abusing his mother and then ended up I think murdering her in front of him as a child Mm -hmm. and uh, he has much trauma about it of course and so now he's real crazy about any potential woman who might be in danger and then of course unsurprisingly he ends up hitting Kim Basinger when he finds out that she slept with Guy Pierce because of course the abuse all trickles down but don't worry he feels real bad about it and then they end up together in the end they do the man needs so much therapy tons and tons of therapy he needs Robin Williams if only Robin Williams was around <laughs> to help him out I will say I mean Danny DeVito is great Danny DeVito is always great sure. he's just this funny skeezy guy who's on the fringes of all of this I really liked Kevin Spacey's character. And I. Mm-hmm. we should mention, of course, we all know Kevin Spacey's a monster. 
It's going to come yes. up every time we see him in all of these various movies when we do this 100%. decade. But I mean, his performance is good. His performance is always good. The character is interesting to me because what's going on with his character is, yes, he's this consultant guy for the LAPD. He loves his notoriety. He oh, he's wants- a consultant for a TV show. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. He's the consultant from the LAPD for the TV show. And he likes to be in the papers and he likes that he's the celebrity cop and he's really here for that. And so you're like, okay, I get that. Sure. And then in the beginning, when the altercation with all the Hispanic guys that gets them all in trouble happens, Russell Crowe's partner has gone down mm-hmm. there to like bust some heads instigate. together. Yeah. To yeah. instigate. And Kevin Spacey goes to Russell Crowe and says, you got to get in there before your partner kills somebody. So like he's initially trying to break the situation up and then he goes along into it and he is sort of like standing in there when the fighting begins and he gets pulled into the fracas i guess it's <laughs> a way to say it he gets hit so he hit somebody who whatever whatever's happening with him and then it's interesting because he ends up getting to a point where he's always been willing to brush everything under the rug as you have to be willing to do if you're working in the LAPD. But it sort of gets to a point where he's learning too much about this case that Guy Pierce is working on and it's very suspicious <laughs> and it's like very mm-hmm. clearly justice has not been served in this case. And at first he's like, you shouldn't be asking these questions. You're just going to get yourself in trouble. And he has this interesting moment where Guy Pierce is telling him why he became a cop. And then he's like, why did you become a cop? And Kevin Spacey has this great look on his face. And he's like, I don't remember. Yeah. He almost <laughs> has like tears in his eyes. Yeah. It's like a whole moment of revelation for him. He doesn't remember why he became a cop. And it's just become this thing where he doesn't get anything out of it really other than glorifying himself and and trying to make it through the day. And so he has like a turning point and he becomes really invested in solving this case in a way that seemingly he has not been for the rest of his career. So it's interesting to see this character sort of get invested in this in a way that he hasn't been before. I found him to be one of the most compelling of the cops, I think. And then it's really sad because James Cromwell kills both my favorite characters. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Kevin Spacey and Danny DeVito. And Danny DeVito. Yeah. I think there's interesting stuff happening here. I think there is interesting commentary on police corruption. It's certainly not perfect Mm -hmm. in how it's handled. I like all of the actors. But yeah, I wouldn't say it's like the greatest, but it's got interesting stuff happening. Yeah. Uh, It's got a lot happening. Some of it has to be interesting, you know? Right. (laughs) There's so much going on in here. And, you know, it's noir, it's stylish. There's interesting stuff to that, too. I didn't hate it, but I it just wasn't as good, I think, as I wanted it to be. And part of that is the Kim Basinger stuff. I feel like they really struggled mm-hmm. with that element of it. And for yeah. that's where you're supposed to be emotionally investing in it. And I just was not at all. I agree with that. So that's the five nominated films. But we ain't done yet, people. <laughs> We Never still are. got stuff to talk Sometimes about. Sometimes we are. Sometimes we are, but not yet. No. So, so we watched and want to talk about several other movies. Yes. I think one of the things is there's an interesting conversation around comedies this year, which we'll get to, but we have one more dramatic film to discuss. Yes. And that's Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights. Paul Thomas Anderson's second feature, sort of like his Pulp Fiction, if you will, the Quentin Tarantino <laughs> second feature. It is about the 1970s adult film industry it's another sprawling cast of characters a million people are in it great cast it's such a good cast but our main person we're following into the world is little mark Wahlberg, <laughs> little baby marky mark who gets discovered by burt reynolds who runs a adult film company that produces these movies and he 
finds Mark Wahlberg, who has just a ridiculously large penis and yeah. some real stage presence. <laughs> so he um, recruits him. Basically, it starts with the glitz and glamour of him coming into this world. And it's so interesting and everything's going to be great. And they're like, we're going to make these into real movies, not just porn, you know? So they're like wanting it to have a real story. Right. They really care about it. Burt Reynolds is like his dream <laughs> is to make a real movie. So they have this shared dream. There's like an upswing for a while. They're making these movies. Mark Wahlberg's character is getting very famous in the circuit. They're making movies that they're proud of. They're describing them as being kind of James Bondy, but the intro is so Starsky and Hutch. That's a thing I think I want to talk about. And so things are going well for a while. Then, of course, drugs enter the scene, which is never a good thing. Mark Wahlberg, at the same time he's becoming addicted to drugs, is becoming like kind of too big for his britches. You know, he thinks he's a huge star and he's the most important part of this. And then various things are happening financially with Burt Reynolds. He brings in a new guy. Mark Wahlberg's not happy about it. So he leaves. There's a breakup. And then there's like a lull where everything's going really poorly for everybody, <laughs> of mm-hmm. course. And then some people die. All sorts of stuff happens. And by the end, Mark Wahlberg has reached his low point and comes back to Burt Reynolds to ask him for help and is sort of re-welcomed back into the family <laughs> of Burt Reynolds and Julianne Moore. And they... Kind of, I guess, are happy again by the end, interestingly. And we'll get into all the specifics because there's so many interesting characters in this. But that's the broad strokes of Boogie Nights. Yeah. What are your thoughts? So I hadn't seen this movie before. This is my first time watching it. I really liked first hour, hour 20 of this movie. The script is pretty fun. It's really pretty funny in places. There's a part of it that I love when he's picking out his name. Yes. So he his name is like Eddie Adams or something, something like yeah. that. And so they're like, you need a you need a new name. And so he's in the hot tub with Burt Reynolds and John C. Riley, And he's talking about he has this vision in his mind. He's like, it's like this big sign. And the name is in like bright blue neon lights with like purple outline. And this name is just so bright and so sharp that the sign, it just blows up because the name is so powerful. And then they show the sign and they show it blowing up. And he's like, it says Dirk. Diggler. And so like like the dialogue is kind of there. It's so funny. The fake porn scenes are Amazing. so hilarious. It's so fun to see Julianne Moore switch to acting badly. I know she's Julianne Moore being amazing and great. And then she puts on her actor in the movie persona and she's horrendous. (laughs) She's so bad. It's so great. So those are really fun. Yeah. The filmmaking is fun. You've got a very active camera. It sort of feels like Tarantino-esque. It feels Scorsese-esque in places. I mean, it's clearly a young person's movie because you're watching things and you're yeah. like, oh, this is sort of his like Goodfellas scene. And then when they're going around the guys at the table, you're like, this is very Reservoir Dogs. And so you can see his influences because he's still young, but it is just right. fun to watch because he's a gifted, gifted right. filmmaker. So very active camera, a lot of different characters. I found the second half. So everything starts to turn at the yeah. New Year's party at 1980 and... I'll talk about that a little bit, but I found the second half kind of predictable. I don't know. Have you ever seen Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, the parody of all of the music biopics? Yeah. So it felt kind of like that. It's the same structure of like, oh, yes. Okay. So now he's done drugs and everything's going to go wrong for a bit because that's the structure of all these movies. And so it comes kind of exactly what you expect. Yeah. And it felt to me a little bit like at that party... It was more the movie just decided everything was going to go bad because you have a couple of different things happening at the party. One, 
William H. Macy is a guy who works for the company and his wife is constantly sleeping with other people oh, like in William public H. and in Macy. front of him. Yeah. And he has a breaking point at the party. He shoots and kills his wife and the guy she's sleeping with and himself. And obviously like the straw that broke the camel's back, people can snap at any time. But it's at that party, too, that Julianne Moore, who's been doing cocaine this whole time, first introduces Mark Wahlberg to cocaine. And it <laughs> seems like it's the first time he's encountered it. it. And I thought yeah. that was weird because he's been in this life for like two years. And I was just like, there's no way this is the first time he's seeing and doing cocaine. Like, it's, right. there's no motivation. It's not like Burt Reynolds has been trying to keep him away from it or he has some internal sense that he shouldn't do it. And something happens and he starts it. It's just it comes a little bit out of nowhere and yeah. I found that a little difficult and so yeah everything turning at 1980 felt a little contrived to me and then the big thing with Burt Reynolds and maybe this is unfair to the movie is the change that's coming on is a switch from film to videotape but when I hear the premise of this film right like things start to go bad in the 1980s in my brain I'm like AIDS is coming and the movie is partially based on the life of John Holmes, who ended up dying of AIDS in the late 1980s, and that never comes up. And I'm like, how do you make this Well, we film? don't make it to the late 1980s. We don't. But I I just, it's, I found it interesting to make this film about the adult industry and have a part where things start going bad, and that's not in anyone's periphery at all. Yeah. And so, yeah, the second half didn't work for me quite as well. I, it felt both sort of predictable and a little directionless with the characters, but I did, I really liked the first like half of this movie. Yeah. I think the second half is probably just a little too long. It definitely drags once we are into our lower, you know, bits of the film. And you're right that a lot of stuff happens that you would have seen coming. Cause it's sort of like, of course this is where everything's going. I think you probably could have just lost some of it. I don't know that you're, you, you know, you need bad things to happen because, of course, bad things are going to happen. Yeah. It's the porn industry. There's going to be sad stories. I Interestingly, I had seen this movie once before, but it's been a while and I didn't remember a ton of it. I remembered it being sad. I remembered leaving it and being like, "Who? a lot of depressing stuff happened in that. And I weirdly was less bummed maybe this time, probably because I couldn't remember exactly what happened, but remembered <laughs> that it was sad. Yeah. So Don Cheadle has a character who's delightful. Don Cheadle's in this movie, people. Great. Don Cheadle's so good. He's really searching for like an identity over the course of the movie. He, he's trying to be like a cowboy guy for, for the beginning of yeah. it. And then, you know, he gets a different outfit at some point. And Well, at the at the New Year's party, he's wearing like a Rick James wig, which is it's, pretty fabulous. It's a lot. Yeah, it's really good. There's such a fun cast of characters. John C. Riley, we've mentioned, but like he's great. What we haven't mentioned is Philip Seymour Hoffman. So mm -hmm. good. When Derek leaves the company, Phil Seymour Hoffman and John C. Riley are the two that are still hanging out with him. And they get pulled by another a dancer friend of theirs into some pretty dark shit that they shouldn't be trying to do. Well, the drug stuff really spirals for him. It seems like they move on to crack and then they're doing whatever they can to get their fix. Meanwhile, he is trying he is trying to record a demo and become a musician. <laughs> That part was pretty funny. It's so good. And that's a little reprieve in the second half of Darkness when he's trying to record a demo and he's singing and he's so bad. It's pretty funny to watch him yeah. try to record this song. <laughs> I did love all of the porn scenes. Their acting is They're really hysterical. funny. Oh, yeah. Do we want to talk a little bit more about the, the real movies they start making? <laughs> so, yeah. They decide to make these movies where... The premise is John C. Riley 
is the sidekick for Mark yeah. Wahlberg. And the two of them are agents. They've pitched them as being kind Secret of- Secret agents. James Bondy. And so, you know, they're also supposed to be like, he's like a man of mystery. He's a ladies man. He's got all those sort of qualities. And they show you the title sequence <laughs> for this movie that they have made. And it is the title sequence of Starskin. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so like funny. The the you know them diving into shot and like shooting a gun a couple of times and then freeze frame. <laughs> I just loved it. It was an excellent nineteen you know parody thing. That yeah. was fantastic. We haven't talked about Heather Graham. Mm-hmm. Roller girl, roller girl who never takes off her roller skates. Her feet must smell terrible. <laughs> it's is. Interesting and troubling. <laughs> so she's another one of the actors and she didn't graduate from high school and that starts to kind of catch up with her. So her redemption is like she's going to get her GED. Yeah. The scene where she first sleeps with Mark Wahlberg, she is wearing a garment I find so confusing. Yeah, I didn't understand how it Because it appears to be a romper, but it right. ties at the waist and she unties it at the waist and then it's just like completely loose. And then it was but just it was a shorts dress. before. And I she thought takes it was it off over her head. And I was like, how how does this garment work? I had the exact same journey as you <laughs> watching that. So if anyone can explain that. I was sure it was a romper and then it was a dress and I didn't understand what was happening. So, yeah, again, I really like the beginning of this movie. I think it's probably worth watching. It is interesting from a filmmaking perspective. It was just, yeah, the second half, like, oh, he's done drugs now. Things are going to go bad. And then they do go bad and they go bad. Yeah. yeah, for a long time. And you're like, this isn't really surprising me in any way. No, it's just sad. Sad things are happening as they do. I do like it, though. I think mm-hmm. enjoyable movie. The world is really interesting the characters are good it's so many great actors and early in their careers too early in their careers and he's clearly going to become a great filmmaker (laughs) you can tell from his second movie i will tell you i did read that the first choice initially for dirk diggler was leonardo dicaprio but he couldn't do it because of titanic so then we get mark Wahlberg. that's such a different movie i can't (laughs) believe that Mark Wahlberg, I think, is perfect for this role. He's, he's so great at playing sweet, dumb, which is he's what so sweet. He's so dumb, and you just—not that we're saying that Mark Wahlberg is either sweet or dumb, but I feel like his vibe is so perfect for this. You feel like he is this guy, and you've understood how he's got here. And he's—he's he's so earnest about things where you're like, "That's a ridiculous thing to be earnest about," but it totally works because he's like, mm-hmm. "I really feel like everybody gets one thing that's their gift, and this is my thing." <laughs> you're like, it's great. And I feel like that really helps you get on board because if the whole thing started feeling really scuzzy from the beginning, you'd just be like, this is a goddamn bummer. I don't want to be here. Yeah. You got to be along. Yeah. And again, like Mark Wahlberg's line delivery as he's explaining how he envisions his name is just, it's so perfect. It's really funny. Like, yeah, Leo's a good actor, but there's something about that Mark Wahlberg voice as he's talking through his name being so bright, so sharp. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I don't really feel like Leo's that funny. Isn't he funny in Once Upon a Time? Who? Good question. I mean, there's definitely comedic tone to that movie. I can't remember if he's funny. He must be. I think everything turned out the way it should have turned out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Mark is great. He doesn't regret doing Titanic. But I think, yeah, Mark just works for me in this role in a way where I, that's not, I don't see it as a Leo type. No. So that's Boogie Nights. Mm -hmm. Should we talk about what an amazing year 1997 was for comedies? It's bananas. We were sorting through all of the films that came out this year. So what's interesting, right, is we have two comedies that were actually nominated for Best Picture, which is very unusual. And then we just have a host of other great, iconic comedies that came out this year that we just we want to talk a little bit about i think one we think actually is stellar and maybe should have been nominated and the rest are just fun and great so the first one that we think like for your consideration men in black men in black what a movie it's so tightly paced i just think it's a masterclass in filmmaking efficiency i hadn't rewatched this movie for quite some time and then i would say Maybe a year ago I rewatched it and then I rewatched it again for this. And I was struck when I saw it again recently with how there are just like no wasted scenes. I felt like usually when you rewatch a movie you hadn't seen in a long time, there are lots of parts where you're like, oh, I don't remember that this happened. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's like not a lot of that in Men in Black. The scenes are all incredibly memorable. Every scene is doing a lot to, to make the plot work and bring you into the world. There's so much world building that has to be done. And character building at the same time. And they just don't waste a minute. You're right into the world in the opening scene where you think that there people are moving illegal immigrants and then yes. one of them is an alien alien. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so that brings you into the like, oh, this is the world we're in. And then I feel like when you meet Will Smith's character, it's so clear immediately exactly who he is. And then when you meet the bug who's Vincent D'Onofrio, who's extraordinary in this movie... Yes. That scene also sells so much about him. It's great. And then the way that Will gets introduced to the Men in Black agency is all fantastic. It's just, it's so clean. It's so quick. It's great. It just carries you along through this story. And there's never a moment where you're like, do we need this part? Like, it's fantastic. Will Smith is spectacular in this film. Yeah. And I think you're right. They do such a good job. The initial establishment of his character, we know so much about him and it's really carried through. His character is really persistent and clever, a little impulsive. And you're like, I could describe this character so well, but he's so funny and so charming. And his rapport with Tommy Lee Jones is, it's just the best. Yeah. That's really, really good. That's some of the best partner chemistry that you can have Mm -hmm. out there. And Tommy Lee Jones is doing his Tommy Lee Jones thing. He's very gruff and, and stoic, but then occasionally sort of winking and wry. And it totally works. It just it totally works. And then, yeah, you mentioned Vincent D'Onofrio. So this movie did win the Makeup Award, which very appropriate. But I also think that maybe Vincent D'Onofrio should have been nominated for supporting actor because the Academy is always like, oh, we love these characters who transform themselves, who do these physical performances, blah, blah, blah. He's doing he's doing the the most. most. And the thing with the makeup, too, is it's so flawless still to this day. 25 years later, I don't fully know where the makeup begins and ends and his performance begins and ends. Yes, very hard to tell. It's confusing to my brain, but it's like, it's seamless. Yep, 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 yep. (laughs) It's so good. So good, people. I really love the 
scenes when he's going through like the interview process all of those scenes are so oh my god it's so, so fantastic so he shows up and he gets put in a room with all these military guys and they're supposed to take a test at first to judge their qualifications they're sitting in these egg chairs with no desks and they each get given a paper test to fill out and a pencil and the test is like taped shut and just how funny will is he breaks his pencil trying to get it open and then he he doesn't have anywhere to write. He's trying to write on the side of his chair and stuff. And then he sees that there is a table in the room. And so he drags the table over so to loud. sit in front of his chair. And it's extremely loud. And it's like, he just tells you so much about his character because it's something that yeah. anyone- It's creative thinking. <laughs> it's creative thinking. It's a it's exactly what you should want to do. But there's also this element of anyone who like either- has been taught to follow the rules or play within the structures or anyone who has like any sort of social anxiety or whatever would never in their life (laughs) have gotten up to loudly drag a table over in a quiet room. It just tells you everything you could ever need to know about this guy. It's fantastic storytelling. And then the scene where they're all shooting the, you know, aliens. I think that's one of the funniest scenes I've ever seen in a movie where, yeah, the aliens are coming down and then he shoots the little girl through the head and explains to Zed, I think, is mm-hmm. Riptorn's character. Why he did that? And he's like, that guy's just working out. If yeah. someone came up in my gym and <laughs> as I was doing pull-ups, I'd be mad. That guy over here, I thought at first he was coming with that paper, but he has a cold. You know, he looks like yeah, he's like, I thought he was not. snarling, but he has a tissue in his. <laughs> yeah. And then we got little Susie up here. She's got quantum textbooks. Those are way too advanced for her. Up in the hood in the middle of the night. That's suspicious. <laughs> so like, this is perfect. so good. And then he goes through the whole spiel, and then he's like. Or do I owe her an apology? <laughs> There's a lot to his character where he's so endearing and you're on on board with him because he's like, he's yeah. just not an asshole, you know? And then as much as it's a very fun movie. So at the beginning of the film, the reason that Jay gets brought into the department is because Kay's partner has retired. And then at the end of the film, Kay says to Jay, I haven't been training a partner. I've been training a replacement. And like... You're real sad. You are. And they've done it, again, so efficiently because they've give. it's not just about their character bond because you're sad to see him go because they're so fun together. But they've also seeded throughout, very sparingly but effectively, this story of how before Kay got into this, he had this woman that he was in love with and they were going to get married and then he happened upon this alien thing and it sort of derailed his whole life plan. But he still, every once in a while, checks in on her to see how she's doing because he still loves her. And so by the end, when he decides to leave, he's going to go get to live the life that he should have gotten to lead if he hadn't joined the men in black it's heartwarming it is so yeah super solid genre mashup movie super well paced super well done the effects are great the action is great the comedy is great i'm advocating for d'onofrio the other category where this film should have been nominated and was not is best song yes you all know failure the academy (laughs) yep what are we doing what are we doing it's great. It is a great movie and a great song. And if you haven't rewatched Men in Black, I'm not going to say if you haven't watched Men in Black because you have. But if you haven't rewatched Men in Black in a while, it's worth a revisit. Yeah. It's real good. Okay. Shall we talk about the other comedies? Yeah. Let's, let's probably speed around. More quickly. Uh, we don't yeah. have to talk about these in detail, but the first Austin Powers movie came out this year. That is, I mean, a cultural Iconic. phenomenon. Iconic. I rewatched it. Did you? 
a lot of the comedy, it still really works. I mean, yeah. again, I will say, as I said at the beginning, comedy is subjective, but the sort of wordplay, goofy jokes that are in this movie are, are right up my alley. So yeah. I'm laughing. It's great. A favorite Jim Carrey movie of mine, Liar Liar. I rewatched it somewhat recently. Still great. Jim Carrey is just so funny. What a funny yeah. person. I rewatched it as well. That's a tight little movie. It's like an hour 32. Yep. And they do all the setup first 20 minutes. And then like the last hour or so is just it's a Jim Carrey showcase. It's him doing his Jim Carrey thing. Yeah. Comedy hijinks. But then there there's heart to it. I mean, there's an emotional undercurrent to the story. And it really works, I think. Yeah, the scene where he... So the premise right of Liar Liar is he's a bad dad. He's not around as much as his son would like him to be. The son at his birthday wishes that his dad could only tell the truth for one day. And there's this part where he says, I'm a bad father, not realizing that's what he's going to say, not even realizing that he feels that's the case. So yeah. it's like, you know... And then he's like, well, I can't lie. So I guess that's true. And you're like, yeah. damn... He's going through a lot. (laughs) So that's Liar Liar. Another one people might not have heard of, but should check out, is In and Out, a Kevin Klein movie. It's delightful. And this is a story that is based on the Tom Hanks Philadelphia Oscars acceptance speech. Mm-hmm. In which he thanked a high school teacher of his who was gay as as one of his, like, you know, the main gay influences in his life for why he made this movie. And so it's turned into a story where Kevin Klein is a teacher in a small town. A former student of his has become an actor and wins an Academy Award at the beginning. And in his acceptance speech, he thanks this Kevin Klein's character and says, and he's gay. Meanwhile, yes. Kevin Klein is set to get married to a woman. <laughs> right. It's worth saying that the in the real life situation, I think That's not the what happened. teacher was was out. Yes. But in this situation, Kevin Klein is deeply closeted. It's an imagining of what might have happened had yes. that teacher not been out. And so it obviously throws the whole small town into disarray because mm-hmm. it's, it's like, is the wedding going to be off? Is he gay? Everyone doesn't know. He's potentially going to lose his job as a teacher because everyone's homophobic, of course. Mm-hmm. His mother is desperate for him to have this wedding, not because she needs him to be straight, but because she really, really wants a wedding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a great, great, great cast of characters. It's super funny. Joan Cusack was nominated for her. Yes, and well-deserved. She's, she's the fiancé. I mean, it's obviously it's 1997. There are some 1997 style stereotypes about gay people in it, but it is made by, I believe, a gay writer and a gay director. And it's all very loving. Yeah, this is in a category of films that like I watch pretty regularly. So I've seen in and out countless times recently, not so recently. It's, yeah, it's so funny. It's very quotable. Kevin Klein's fantastic. Hysterical. You're going to love it. You're going to love the cast of characters. They're all so great. And then one that I would bet money people haven't heard of (laughs) is a favorite of mine, The House of Yes, which is a film based on a play that is about this wealthy family. We have a couple of twins and their brother and they have a mother and it's Thanksgiving. They live in D.C. There's a hurricane happening. The brother who's been away for a while is bringing his girlfriend that they haven't met to the house and uh, so things sort of devolve from there because the sister has some mental instability and it turns out that the sister and brother who are twins have quite the background together (laughs) 
<laughs> and it's just delightfully written. I'm obsessed with the script of this thing. The dialogue's fantastic. The characters are so rich and so weird. I think the original playwright describes it as being about what happens to rich people when they've never heard the word no. And so it's just sort of about that. Like Freddie Prince Jr. plays the brother when he becomes obsessed with seducing the fiance that he has mm-hmm. just met that day. <laughs> So you're like, it's absolutely wild, the things that these people do. But I, yeah, I rewatched it and I hadn't in a while and I still love the script. So snappy. Yeah, I rewatched it as well. I think I'd only seen it once before with you. It's it's very play It feels yes. like a play, the way the pacing of the dialogue and just the way it's written. You will not be surprised if you watch it to learn that it's based on a play. But if that's your yeah. thing. If you like, like plays, it. if you like plays... On stage or adapted for the screen, you might like it. I think it's a fun time. And Parker Posey, I don't think we even said, Parker Posey is the main sister and she's great. I love Parker she's Posey. She's good. It's a fun time. Are we done? Good God, that's enough movies, right? Yeah, there were other comedies that came out this year. Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion. Oh, I love That Romy was another one. Two comedies that I love, which uh, is maybe going to make people worry about my comedic taste, but... The film Spice World came out this year, which I still love and was a childhood favorite. And also the movie Good Burger, which is based on an all that sketch, which I still have a very fond place in my heart. And there are some jokes in that movie that still still work for me. So great. A lot of comedy in 97. Good year. Good year for comedy. Okay, so uh, I guess we should say we did check in with like best of lists for the year. We looked at AFI. We did all that. Boogie Nights is obviously on a lot of people's best of lists. Mm-hmm. Titanic is number three on the AFI. No. Th- 83. Whoa. <laughs> three. Titanic is number 83. No. <laughs> Incorrect. Titanic is 83 on the AFI top 100 list. It is the only one of these movies that is on the list. So with all that in mind... <laughs> We should ask, what should have won? I don't know. I feel mixed about my yeses or nos. I feel mixed, <laughs> I feel about, mixed the ones about everything. <laughs> I, just, I do. You know, Goodwill Hunting, LA Confidential seem like movies that could win sure. Best Picture. And I think I'd be fine with either of them winning. I don't feel strongly either way. Obviously, again, we acknowledge Titanic was huge. Titanic was everywhere. Everyone loved Titanic. Yeah. I do feel like I probably would pick Goodwill Hunting, though I don't think it's a perfect movie. But of these five, I would pick Goodwill Hunting. I do feel like if Goodwill Hunting had won, we would have heard for the last however many years, how the fuck did Titanic not win? A travesty. Yeah. So it would have been one of those. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe they didn't get it wrong, but we're just upset about it. Yeah, sometimes you can be upset about things that are right. <laughs> That is that could be the first time we come to that conclusion. Yeah. What should have run? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe Full Monty should have won just because it would have been so fun for it, it to beat great. Titanic. And then also if people were mad about it, it wouldn't be quite the same as people being mad about Goodwill Hunting. But it would have been like this yeah. little picture from out of England just came from nowhere. Yeah. And then you get all these people that are like, what the fuck is the Full Monty? <laughs> I'm here for it. I support that turn of events. I'll say I probably would have nominated Boogie Nights. I don't think it would have won, but I would have nominated Boogie Nights. But people didn't know. People didn't know who Paul Thomas Anderson would be. They just know that they've heard of Jack Nicholson before. They do know that. 
Yeah. All right. So we're mixed. We're mixed about it. Maybe the right thing happened and we just have to live with it. We really do just have to live with Titanic, don't we? We do. There's no getting rid of it. Let's let's lift our moods by taking a little <laughs> a, a quick jaunt over to Jake Gyllenhaal Corner and ask, should Jake Gyllenhaal have been nominated for an Oscar this year? Checking in on the year. Yes. He was 17 years old this year. So he was not in anything that is really in the conversation. We're getting so close. Next year is October Sky, and one day we will get to talk about October Sky, but we'll save that for whenever we get to it. Hell yeah. So let's do our usual. If he should not have been nominated for anything he was in, what could we put him in that he would have been good as? So I feel like obviously the elephant in the room, the role that is the most, you know, he's similar in age to is the Leo role, right? What the hell does that do to Titanic? I I mean... (laughs) It's better for me as an eight-year-old, I guess, because at least then I'm like, well, yeah, he's cute. So, you know, that's fine. I mean, really, I just don't want to put Jake in it because it's not a good movie. No, no, I wouldn't do that to him. I just felt like it had to be talked about. I agree. I agree. And it's it's obvious because, yeah, it is. he's relatively close in age to Leo. So, yeah, I feel like my aversion is more just as a full adult. I'm like, I really don't like it. I, I want him to have richer roles with a more interesting character yeah okay well what would he have been good as do you think i mean he could play you know will in good will hunting but it feels like that's so like matt damon and ben affleck's movie it's like hard to disaggregate you can't take them out of it i mean it is them yeah i don't really know what to do with him this year he could have been a cop in la confidential as an older jake yeah obviously Yeah, yeah yeah I might have liked him more if, like, he was Guy Pierce or something instead of Guy Pierce. Maybe that would have helped me out with those characters. He could do the business with the glasses. Yes. <laughs> the glasses thing is his best bit. Okay, I think if we can't take anyone out of Goodwill Hunting because it's too, yeah, you know, you can't touch it. Uh, a full piece. I think the place to slot him in has to be L.A. Confidential. Yep. Of the nominees. So yeah, he could be Guy Pierce. Sure. That's fine. That's a good enough, good enough part for him. Okay, finally, 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 we have come to the conclusion. So do you see yourself coming back to any of these films? I mean, all the comedies are obviously worth a revisit, and that's why we're talking about them in the first place. Yes, of the nominees, I don't really see myself rewatching any of them. Of the comedies, I told you already, I watch in and out like, regularly so 100 yeah. yeah. on that one but i'll rewatch any of those comedies you i yeah similarly all the comedies are great i really enjoyed the full monty i could see myself watching it again someday i don't know that mm-hmm. it's entering a like a yearly rewatch or anything and i'm probably at some point in my life will rewatch goodwill hunting i hope to never rewatch titanic uh- <laughs> And I probably won't be rewatching the others. I'm really glad, though, that I rewatched Boogie Nights. I think I, I'm I happy liked, I've seen it. I liked it more on rewatch is is what mm-hmm. I'm saying. I think I I don't know what was going on with me at the time that I watched it, but I there was a lot that I didn't remember about it. And I liked it a lot the second time. But again, if I were ever to rewatch it, you're signing up for quite the slog. Maybe I would rewatch the first half. <laughs> Yeah, maybe that's the key. It's just to sit down and be like, mm, "Let's see, let's see." I'm gonna watch from fun. the beginning to the New Year's Eve party, and then I'm gonna stop, or like yeah. fast forward to the end when everyone's like, "We're friends again." Yeah, yeah. Have we learned anything about what makes the best picture? 
I mean, again, Titanic, it's got scope. It's got scale. It was the picture of the year. Everyone mm. was going nuts. I think the Academy probably really could Couldn't not do have anything gotten else. away without rewarding it. Well, I mean, given this crop of nominees, I think that's fair. Yeah. I think that there are other movies that could have been good enough for you to be like, let's pick that and mm-hmm. not Titanic. But given this slate and the way everyone feels about Titanic other than you and me. It is tough to see a, a world where they could do anything other than give it to Titanic. Even yeah. though the dialogue's bad. It's pretty bad. Mm. Okay. Patterns. Checking in on angry white guys as we always do. We have... There's sort of interesting stuff going on. I mean, LA Confidential, there's all sorts of angry white guys going on in that. You've got you got Billy Zane. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's pretty toxic but so good <laughs> he's so toxic yeah i mean the full monty in some ways is about toxic masculinity because it is about these guys who just cannot confront the emotional reality of how losing their job yeah. is affecting how they feel about themselves as men but it is about that it's about that but it's about how to help like in a healthy way try to deal with these yeah. things which is the opposite of being about which is toxic what you want to, really. want to do yeah. yeah all right let's talk about <laughs> biopics no biopics zero biopics how is it even possible a number of these movies incorporate real events into them, both LA yes. Confidential and not a nominee, but Boogie Nights does, and obviously Titanic does. But yeah, no biopics. It's wild. Original ideas. We have some. Mm-hmm. Goodwill Hunting is an original idea. I don't actually know the origins of the Fulmonte. Was that a play? It might have been a play. No, it wasn't a play first. Oh, it's just an original story. I love that. I like Confidential is based on a book. Yes, but I think that As Good As It Gets is an original idea. So there's kind of a lot of original ideas going yeah. on this year. Good job, 97. It's impressive stuff. And Titanic, I assume, was just based on James Cameron's love of the Titanic. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, fascinating. It's a breakthrough year for original ideas. It is. I do think it's interesting, again, getting back to the comedies discussion, that Yes, two comedies were nominated, but of the ones we discussed, they are the most grounded. They have no fantastical elements. Like, Yeah, know, I mean, they're way more avoid, Oscar movies than genre. the ones we've talked about. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's all I have to say. I can't say anything. We've said a lot. I think we've <laughs> talked for a while about these movies, but I'm glad that we got Titanic off our chests. We've exercised that demon, even though our conclusion was, I guess it's fine. Yes. <laughs> I guess it should have won. I guess I have to admit that. But as long, only if you admit, not you, but you, the world, admit it's not a good movie. Exactly. You can have your best picture if you will also acknowledge that there's a lot of bad going on in that movie. Yeah. Okay. So what are we talking about next time? We're hitting our last, I mean, we again, we haven't done the 20s, but there's only two years in the 20s. We're hitting our last full decade, which is really exciting. We hadn't done this decade before. And our next time, we're talking about the 17th Academy Awards or the films of 1944. Indeed. Yeah. The nominees were Double Indemnity, Gaslight, Going My Way, Since You Went Away, and Wilson. Have you seen any of these films? I've seen Gaslight. Have you seen any of these films? I've seen none of these films, though I, of course, know things about Gaslight. I'm very excited. It's a Me collection too. of new pictures for us. I'm hoping some of them will be fun. It's during World War II, so that could go either way. We might get some bummers yeah. about World War II, and we might get some escapist fare 
for people who are hoping to not think about World War II because it's, it's currently happening. I'm excited to watch Double Indemnity because that's a movie that I know the title of and I feel like we've read what it's about several times and I can never remember. So hopefully this will finally lodge in my brain and I'll be able to talk to people about Fingers crossed. In the meantime, if you have thoughts, comments, questions, concerns, I think we asked some questions over the course of this. If you have answers to any of those, reach out to us at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com. We are on Twitter and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod, and we have a new website called OscarsWrongPod.com that you should check out. Lots of cool stuff over there. If you are enjoying the podcast, tell a friend, leave us a review, and subscribe. New episodes come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. 